This message was given at Campus Fellowship's 2021 Winter Retreat in Estes Park, Colorado by Jacob Vansickle, pastor of Sacred City Church in Providence, Rhode Island. The theme of the conference was discern, how to discern God's will for your life. We hope you find this encouraging. These last two years have been a whirlwind, haven't they? Can we say that? They've been a whirlwind. It's been a pretty tumultuous time, pretty hard time. And that has been the case for the entire world. But for you in particular, I want to just lean into this. For you in particular, it's been hard because it came at a time that is already tumultuous, already hard, already unexpected. Senior year of college, or senior of high school, freshman year of college, right in the middle of your high school experience, right in the middle of your college experience, two weeks to flatten the curve became two years to flatten your college experience. That's basically what happened. It's been hard. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this topic is because discerning the will of God is now more important than ever. It's always been important, let's be honest. It's always been important. But now more than ever, people are asking, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Now, I have a confession. You ready for my confession? I am a millennial. I'm sorry. I am so sorry. Okay, and I know most of you, most of you would be considered Gen Z or now the Zoomer generation. I don't, I don't know if you guys like that term. I don't, I, uh, but anyways, that, and there are some generational differences. So I want to help you understand what it's like to be a millennial. This is what it's like to be a millennial. When I was a kid, I was playing catch with a friend in his backyard. We were just throwing the football back and forth, back and forth. And he starts um, throwing it to me. He, he overshoots a little bit, and I'm running for the ball as fast as I can. And I'm just looking up, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be an epic catch. I'm going to catch this ball. What I didn't realize is his dad's trailer was right in front of me, about this high, okay? And I run as fast as I can right into the trailer. And I'm on the ground, unable to breathe. That's what it's like to be a millennial. That's, that's what it's like. So I'm born in the late 80s. Life's pretty good. The Cold War ends early 90s. Dot com, boom. Economy's growing and great. 2000s start. And yes, there's 9-11, and 9-11 was horrible. But unless you lived in New York City or had a friend or family in the military, it really didn't affect the average American's life very much. But then 2006 happened and the economy crashed and struggled to get back up. I was recently read a book called When the Science of Timing, and it was going through how when you graduate can affect the rest of your life. <laughs> it was like the worst time to graduate was 2010 and 2011. I'm like, wait a second, that's when I graduated. <laughs> it's like, and it all like made sense. I had a friend, top of his class in the business school, applied to 500 jobs before he got a job. <laughs> it's like, that's what it was like during that time. So millennials, like, I didn't invent the term, but they, we start to invent terms like adulting. <laughs> adulting is hard. <laughs> it's like, and now let's, some perspective. You know, we have some great grandparents, some grandparents that were driving tanks into Germany. That's not, millennials, we blogged about how horrible the Nazis were. We didn't actually fight them, okay? That's not, that's not these are like very first world problems. That's what it's like to be a millennial. Now, what is it like to be in Gen Z? I don't, I don't know from personal experience, but from what I've observed and what I've seen just reading some of the studies that are recently coming out, you didn't hit the trailer. You were born under the trailer. <laughs> it's like, because you were born during the time that the economy, that was a lot of your childhood. And then there's one of the most polarizing, hard elections, probably in at least 100 years, for America. And people, you know, Thanksgiving's change, Christmas's change, a lot of division. And not only that, there's this thing called social media that millennials invented. I am so sorry. Okay, I am. But it's like you're raised with it. It is something that was like cool for me in college. Oh, did you hear about Facebook? You know, that, I know that makes me sound like a dinosaur, but it's like, but you're raised with it. 
and all the implications of that. And then during a critical time of your life, the world shuts down. And it's still back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the reason why I want to kind of set that stage is because the text we're looking at tonight comes in a similar time. Not exactly the same. There's no time that's exactly the same. But it comes in a similar time. We're going to be reading Joshua 1, verses 17 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua 1, verses 17 through 19. It's the sixth book of the Bible. And in Joshua, what we find is the people of God have been, like this is the story, this is how it goes. God raises up a man called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And he empowers him and he goes into Egypt and he starts doing all of these plagues. And these plagues are specifically targeted at the Egyptian gods. Did you know that? The plagues, each one has, is a target on one of the Egyptian gods. Basically, it's God saying, I'm God, they're statues, okay? I'm God. And it all climaxes with God rescuing his people by splitting the Red Sea and then crashing it down on their enemies. That's what he's doing. That's how he rescues his people. Now, you would think, you know, you would think after all of that, they would be like, okay, God, whatever you say, we'll obey you, and we'll obey you with a good attitude. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think you, after seeing all of that, it's like, literally, the Red Sea went like this, and then went like this again. It's like, but is that what happens? No, that's not what happens. They complain, they grumble, they're like, oh, remember the food back in Egypt? You know, they mention, I love, they list all these foods back in, like the leeks back in Egypt. I'm like, who even likes leeks? Why are you complaining? It's like, oh, the food back in Egypt. And they keep on complaining and complaining and complaining. And God literally has bread fall down from heaven to provide for them. He provides water from a rock. And then they get to the promised land. They get to the promised land and after he does all of these things, they look at the enemies that own the promised land, the enemies that God said, we're gonna bring judgment to these people. They've been rebelling against me for 400 years. And they say, yeah, no way, we can't do that. It's like, they're not even bigger than Egypt. And they still look, yeah, there's no way. There's no way. So what God does is he sends them back in the wilderness. 40 years 40 years to flatten their pride and humble them. And Joshua becomes the new leader after Moses dies. And he is about to lead this people into the promised land and God comes to him. He comes to him in time of polarization. People are attacking Moses as a leader and they're gonna do it to Joshua as well. Comes at a time where he's looking into the future. How is this possibly gonna work out? How is it possibly going to work out? I know God is God, but how is he going to do it? Extreme pressure is on him. Pretty big shoes to fill. Moses, <laughs> you know, pretty big shoes to fill. And God comes to him and speaks to him. And this is what he says. In Joshua 1, 7 through 9, it says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would show us from your word how we ought to live. We don't want to be a people that look at your word and we walk away unchanged. We want to walk away changed. 
Give us a spirit now. Enlighten our hearts. Amen. Now, the time in the wilderness was not a complete loss for Israel. It wasn't just 40 years of wasted time. It gave Moses some time. And during that time, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Okay? He wrote the history of Israel, which before that had just been passed down orally. Then he wrote how God saved him out of Egypt. And then he gave the law. And yes, I know that he, he didn't write all of Deuteronomy. Okay, I know that, I know that. Okay, but, but he gives them the law to the people. And then God comes to Joshua and he says this, be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you to do. And then a little bit later it says, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. This was true for Joshua. He needed to be careful to do everything that God has commanded you or commanded him. But this is also true for you. The only difference between you and Joshua is you have more of it. Like consider, Joshua did not have the book of Joshua. He lived the book of Joshua, okay? We now have that book and Judges and all the way to Revelation. We have been given more of what God says and we are still to obey it and be careful to do according to all that is written in it. That is what we're to do. Now, I want to go through some verses. And I love taking just one theme in the Bible and going through a list of verses. It's like washing. It's like letting the verses just wash over us. So I want to go through a list of verses that show why the Bible is necessary. Why is it necessary for our life? The first one is this. The Bible is necessary for salvation. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How does someone become a Christian? They hear the word of Christ. They hear about him and they believe in him in faith. You can't become a Christian without that word. Of course, someone could become a Christian without reading this verse and putting their finger on the line and going through. Yeah, you, they can hear it by hearing it, you know, in person, by, from a friend, over the radio. They can hear it in a lot of different ways, but you need to hear the word. The second one is this. The Bible is necessary for sanctification. John seven seventeen. sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Do you want to change? Do you ever feel like there are just sins you can't kick, just things over and over and over again. If you want to change, you need the word of God. This is Jesus praying for you, praying for his church. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God will change you. The next one is this. The Bible is necessary for encouragement and hope in this world. Romans 15, 4 says this. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Do you ever feel hopeless? Do you ever feel like you can't be encouraged? The scriptures are written so that you can have hope and be encouraged. You know, one thing I've realized is just observing a lot of different Christian community that there are some people that will come into Christian community 90% of the time and be ready to encourage other people. And there'll be others that come into Christian community 90% of the time and they will need encouragement from other people. Now, obviously, every single one of us will be in that place at some point in time. Sometimes we'll come in, we'll need encouragement. Sometimes we'll come in and we'll need to encourage. But what is the difference between those that 90% of the time they come in, they're ready to encourage and 90% of the time, the other group comes in, they need to be encouraged from other people. This is the difference. The other group receives encouragement from the scriptures. They receive encouragement and hope. And they bring it with them into community and they dispense it out. The other people come ready to eat the, the scraps off the table of those people. That's the difference. And for a Christian community to thrive, you have to have a large percentage of that group consuming and being encouraged and having hope in and bringing it in to the community to dispense it. 
The next one is this. The Bible is necessary for knowing your own thoughts and intentions. The Bible is necessary for knowing your own thoughts and intentions. This is what Hebrews 4 says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning, this is it, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't it weird that humans talk in such a way of like, I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying to learn about myself. You would think we would know. <laughs> you know, we've been with ourselves the whole time. <laughs> it's like... But for some reason, we don't know. We don't. You need the word of God to know your own thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I bet if you've read the Bible for any length of time, I bet there have been times you read and you're like, that's what's going on. That's what's going on. And it's like an insight to your own soul exposed by the word of God. You need the word of God to even understand yourself. The Bible is also necessary to be pure. Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Are you struggling with hitting up Tinder? Hitting up Pornhub? Hitting up just, just, a, little, just a little bit of flesh on Instagram or Snapchat? How do you guard yourself with this? Guard yourself with this. Now, you don't guard something that is not under attack. Does that make sense? You don't guard something that is not under attack. And in this culture, it is under attack. Now more than ever, with the accessibility of things, now more than ever, you need to guard it with the word of God to be pure. And not only to be pure, the next one is this, the Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life in all areas. Jesus says this in Matthew 4, 4, the man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You wanna live? You wanna have spiritual vitality and life? Consume the word of God. Consume it, consume it, consume it and you'll live. If you skip enough meals, you're gonna feel the effects. And in fact, if, if you're someone that is like not eaten enough over a period of time, you, you haven't eaten the way you should, and you start to eat, you'll realize a difference. And you'll realize, oh, I didn't understand how much I needed to eat, or how much I needed to eat these types of foods until I did it. Same with the word of God. You will not realize how much you need it until you start to devour it. And then you go a day or a two and you don't read it or you don't meditate on it and it's way off over here and you'll feel its effects. The Bible is also necessary for spiritual peace. Psalm 119, 165 says this, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. You want to be someone who stands in the gap, someone who the waves hit up against you and you stand? Someone who has peace in a time of just anxiety? The Word of God. The Word of God will provide that peace. Next, the Bible is necessary to become wise. Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Are you dumb? <laughs> Does anybody want, don't, don't raise your hand. Okay, it's like, it's like, are you dumb? Are you unwise? The Bible makes wise the simple. It makes you wise beyond your years. It teaches you things about how to live, about how to not to make mistakes. It's like you're meditating the word of God, a mistake comes in front of you, and okay, well, I can skip that one. Okay, it's like, you're going to make plenty of mistakes, even when reading God's word. Let's skip a few, okay? Let's just skip a few. All of these are very important. All of these are very important. We need it. We can't go a day without it. But especially when we talk about discerning the will of God, 
it is massively important. Because of this, the Bible is sufficient for all decisions. The Bible is sufficient for all decisions. Psalm, one, er, Psalm 119, 1 says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. I'm going to read this again. If you get one verse, this is it, okay? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. You know what this means? It means that you will not die and stand before God and have him say something like, you know, you really messed up. You were supposed to be a nurse. Or you were supposed to be a lawyer. Or you were supposed to be an accountant. Didn't you notice the cloud? It was like a gavel-shaped cloud showing you that you were supposed to be a judge. You know, it's like you're not going to have that happen. Because look what the word, this verse says. Whose way is blameless, who walk according to his law. Your way is going to be blameless if you just walked according to his law. Perfect, according to his law. Meaning, if you just did what this said, you'd be fine. Now, we don't. That's kind of the point of the gospel. We don't. But it's like, if you just did what this said, you'd be fine. Now, does this mean that God doesn't care about whether or not you're a nurse? Absolutely not. Does this mean that he won't lead in specific decisions? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying he's not judging you based off of that. There's no verse that says be a nurse. You know, it's like, it's like that'd be kind of, okay, Jacob Ansicle, be a nurse. Oh, man. It's like that's going to be a lot of work. Okay, it's like, no, that's not in the Bible. Your way will be blameless if you just do what this says. The next verse is this. Famous verse. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, all of these things are massively important, okay? But the word of God will complete you. It'll complete you. It'll make you into who God is making you to be. And when you are complete, what happens? According to this verse, you are equipped for some of the good works in front of you. Wait a second. Is it? No, for all. Not some. All of the good works in front of you. So the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So this word right here and everything that it says in it it will equip you for every single thing you're going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next month and the next year and the next until you die. Everything you need to be equipped. Now, does this mean that we don't need any other influences? Just me and my Bible, that's all I need? No, not at all, not at all. In fact, let's say you have an unbelieving professor and they're really good in their field and they say, hey, don't get an internship here. Go to this company, get an internship there. That is extremely helpful. And you should take notes, okay? But will his advice complete you and equip you for every single thing you're going to do in life? No. No, how are you going to do good in that role? How are you going to know if you should stay in that role? The Word of God will direct you and complete you and equip you for that. The last verse is this, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. This is saying that we have every single thing we need for life and godliness. That's a pretty large umbrella. <laughs> everything we need. And we have everything we need for life and godliness through knowing God. And how do we grow in the knowledge of God? Through his precious promises. His promises. This is how you became a Christian in the first place. You heard a promise. If you repent and believe in him, you'll be saved. Okay, that's a promise. You took it to the bank. And for the rest of your life, this is how you're going to grow. Understanding his promises 
growing in a knowledge of God and being equipped, being made ready for everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have it. You have it. The Word of God in your hand gives you everything you need to be blameless, to be complete, to be equipped. You have all you need for life and godliness. And that is why Joshua tells you, and God tells Joshua through him, that we should be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So that's how we know what to do. The next one is this, do what is good and best. Next one is this, do what is good. Look in Joshua 1, 7 through 8, what God tells Joshua next. He says, do not turn from the left to the right. And then again in verse 8, it says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Now, God knows that we are like sheep that often wander. That's just the way we are. We will wander to the right or to the left. And he's saying, right down the middle. Go right down the middle. And he knows that we are prone to forget. That's why he tells us to meditate. Meditate on it. Meditate on it. Now, when I was talking last night about the spiritual disciplines, one of them was meditating on God's word. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, oh, like meditation, I get it. It's like when somebody goes off on a high mountain and goes, um, you know, it's like, that's, check, got it. You know, it's like, that's very different. Eastern meditation is emptying your mind. Christian meditation is filling your mind with truth and chewing on it and allowing that truth to speak to everything inside of your head. Not emptying your head, allowing God's truth to speak to everything inside of your head. And we need to meditate on it day and night, just like Joshua. That's what Psalm 1 says, that the man who, and the woman who listens and meditates on God's word day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in season and out of season. You wanna be like that? You need to meditate on it. Now, we could just go and get all of the commands in the Bible, and that would be a good thing. I personally have not done that. If one of you does it, please just send me the PDF, you know, it's like, just go and you make a list of all the commands of the Bible. That would be good, and meditate on all of them. But I'm just gonna give you three. And what we're going to do is we're gonna create a decision filter, okay? You know when you make coffee, for those that make coffee, you know, you just, you grind the coffee, and you put it in the filter, and you pour the hot water, it's in the machine, and the machine is doing it for you, and the hot water is just rinsing over this beautiful brown beans, you know? And out comes, drip, 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 the elixir of life, okay? It's like, it's, oh, coffee, coffee, coffee. I could say, okay, that's what, what we're going to do is create a decision filter. And this decision filter, it will keep all the grounds in it, and out, come, out will come the elixir of life. These are good decisions, now, again, we could go through every passage in the Bible, but we're only going to look at three. Here's the first one. Obey all. We've already went through this one. Matthew 28, 20. Jesus commands them to do according to all that I have commanded you. But here's another one. James 4, 4 17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Here's a question. Now, think back to your decision. You know the decision I had you write down? Here's a question for that decision. Will this decision lead to obeying or not breaking the commands of God? Will this decision lead to obeying or not breaking the commands of God? Now, remember last night I said like, even if God says, walk backwards for the rest of your life, we should do it? That's true. But I understand that that's a horrible example because God hasn't commanded us to walk backwards. That'd be horribly in, <laughs> insufficient and ineffective and people would always be looking at us weird. It wouldn't make sense. But know this, every single thing that God has commanded you to do is for your good. It's for your good. It's for your thriving. 
obey all. The next verse is this, love God. Jesus said that the most important command is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You know something in Christian circles that people say a lot that are, that are not true at all? One thing people say is, all sins are the same. Not true at all. <laughs> you know, some sins are definitely worse than others. They all separate us from God. That is true. But that does not make all sins the same as far as like being the same level. No, that's not true at all. The next thing that people say, and they, I think they apply it to commands, is like all commands are exactly the same. You just, yeah, you're obeying a command, you're obeying a command. That's not the way God views it. Jesus takes a highlighter and he highlights the most important command. He says the most important command is this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the question for your decision is this, will this decision lead me to love others, or excuse me, lead me to love God more with all my life and self? Will this decision lead me to love God more with all my life and self? There are just a million applications to this, but you know when you're making decisions for what you're gonna do in the summer? I've had hundreds of conversations. What are you gonna do this summer? And it's like, okay, I'm, well, I'm thinking about being a, a towel boy on a cruise ship. You know, it's, like, it's like, okay, now, is there a verse that says don't be a towel boy on a cruise ship? No, there's not, unfortunately, okay? There's not a verse that says that. But here's, here's the question. It's like, would that decision lead you to love God more with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Christians are people, or at least we should be people that every decision is like, okay, this is priority number uno. Number one. And if it affects that negatively, I'm not doing it. It doesn't matter what it is. Priority number one, to love God. And then Jesus gives the second most important command. He says the second one is like this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Takes the highlighter out again highlights the second most important command in all of the Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this is one of those passages that has a million applications, but here's just one question I want you to ask of your decision. Will this decision lead me to love others more with all my life and self? To love others more with all my life and self. Do other people affect your decisions? Like, do you, when you make decisions, do you consider other people? And I'm not talking about hypothetical people in the future. Like people with actual names. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, if I do this, and someday I could love someone like 10 years from now, if I just get to a point where I'm just super rich, okay? It's like, yeah, well, that's true, but it's like, those are hypothetical people. Do actual people affect your decisions. For example, if you, let's say you're a senior in college and you lead someone to the Lord. God just graces you to be there when someone becomes a Christian, you're discipling them and you're about to graduate and it's very clear that if you just stayed one more year just to help them get off their feet and run the Christian life, that it'd be extremely loving and helpful to them. Would you even consider it? I am not saying, okay, Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you're in that situation, that's what you have to do, because obviously that would be the loving thing. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying, does it even come on your radar? Do other people even come on your radar in making decisions? Because you're supposed to love people as you love yourself. And if the only person on your radar is yourself in making decisions, that is just like a huge swing and a miss when it comes to the second most important command in all of the Bible. Making the decision filter, pouring it out, going through all of our decisions with this. Now again, God doesn't just care about commands. He also cares about results. What are the goals? What are we trying to accomplish? And you look at Joshua uh, one, seven, and nine, we see that. It says, they, that you may have good success wherever you go. And then at the end it says, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
He cares. He cares about what's going to happen. Now, later on in Joshua, he spells out what this good success is going to look like and what he needs to do to get there. And we're not Joshua. We're not there. We're not taking over the promised land. That's, that's over there. We're in a different place in the timeline, but God still cares about results now. So we're going to give it a second decision filter, a decision filter that looks at the results and the goals and again, we could get a list of all the goals, everything God cares about, we could get a list. This are his purposes, but we're just going to look at three. Here's the first one, the cultural mandate, or the, the first commission. Uh, Genesis 1.28 says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living things that moves on the earth. Here's the question for your decision. Is this decision the best, most strategic way to be fruitful in and subdue this world? God gave mankind, and we know that it's not just Adam and Eve because he, he gives it again to Noah. God gives mankind the responsibility to make something of this world, to cultivate it, to make it into a beautiful place, and different people have different gifts when it comes to this. Some of you are just great artists, and you can take paint and make it into something beautiful that people would actually pay money to look at. It's, that's amazing. And some of you are good with words, and you can write words that people actually want to read. And some of you are good with like computer code and things that I can't even communicate. It's like, it's like you're good with that. Are good with numbers. You're going to be a future accountant and tell me I'm wrong when I declare my budget. You know, it's like, it's like you're going to be like a lot of different gifts in this room and you're meant to take those and utilize them in the world that makes something of this world that leads to human thriving for God's glory. That's what you're supposed to do. My brother, one summer, he stayed with me um, and every Saturday in the morning, we'd wake up and we'd go set up uh, the Central City soccer fields. We had a soccer ministry and we'd put together these janky soccer goals and wrench them together. And my brother, he's always been really good with his hands. Always been really good with his hands. And he's working alongside primarily Drake students, <laughs> you know, and these guys, this group of guys in the group, there's a future um, web designer and computer guy, there's a future doctor, future lawyer, future actuary, a few, a few actuaries, <laughs> future accountant, okay, and he came to me afterwards, he's like, I cannot believe there, there are people that are so smart, yet so stupid with a wrench. <laughs> <laughs> and it's what, what he was showing, what he was saying and communicating with that is, I have a gift that they don't have, and they have gifts that I don't have. And that is amazing. What gift has God given you that will cultivate this world? And how can you leverage it in such a way that blesses everyone? The cultural mandate. The next one is this. The next goal that we should have in mind is this, is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples. Now, here's the question for your decision. Is this decision the best, most strategic way for me to make disciples with my life? Is it the best, most strategic way for me to make disciples with my life? Now, I think of the Great Commission kind of in concentric circles of decision-making, okay? Because some people will hear that and say, oh, yes, I guess I need to be a missionary. That is not what I'm saying. Some of you will, but certainly not all of you. Most of you will not. Think of it in concentric circles, working its way out. So, for example, who has neighbors? Wow, a lot of you have neighbors. That's great. That's great. It's like, how about if we started with loving our neighbors by actually loving our actual neighbors? That would be a great idea. Let's just start there. 
The person that's living across from you, or living to the right, or living to the left, what are their names? What are their passions? How can you love them? How you can serve them? And how can you share the gospel with them and see them become followers of Jesus? You have your neighbors, and then you have your family. Who here has family? <laughs> it's like, oh, a lot of people. A lot of people have family. It's like, you have family that you have influence over, that you have a lot of track record with, that you can speak into their life in a way that other people can't. You start there. And then think of your vocation. All of us are going to work vocations. You know, when, it's, when it came to the cultural mandate and doing something with your life, that doctrine, the doctrine of vocation, was rediscovered, polished off in the Reformation. Because it's like, it's not just being about being a clergy and the clergy class and superhero saint Christians. Every Christian is to go out and be, have an impact in this world. Martin Luther said, it's like, when we pray, God, give me today my daily bread, it assumes that there's going to be a baker making the bread. It's like, or when it, we see in Romans 13 that God has given governments to rule righteously, and it means some of you, gulp, might become politicians. You know, it's like, it's like, hopefully not all of you, but some of you will become politicians to rule righteously. That's God's way of ruling the world, and we can go into it. Now, when people make decisions with their vocation, some of you will make decisions particularly for Great Commission reasons. So, for example, you might decide to take a job in another city so you can be a part of a church plant. And say, so, okay, I'm an accountant. I can be an accountant somewhere else. I'm going to get another accountant job so I can be a part of this to make disciples. Or you might do the opposite. You're offered a job making more money in another city, but you decide to stay where you're at because you're making disciples. You're reaching out to your neighbors. You're discipling these people. You're teaching them the word. And it's like, you know what? That's not worth it. I'm going to stay where I'm at. You're making different vocational decisions with the Great Commission in mind. And then some of you, God will lead to go into ministry, to use your nine to five, trying to equip the saints, trying to reach out to people, trying to see people be sanctified with the truth. He'll lead some of you to do that. And I'm so thankful, you know, I was talking, I think I was talking to Jack. There you are, Jack. Okay, I was and I'm just reminiscing, and I'm like, I cannot believe. You know, the, the number one feeling when I get to speak to a group, regardless of, regardless of the size, or I get to do a wedding, oh man, the number one thing that goes through my mind is I cannot believe that God would use someone like me to do something like this. What a privilege. And God will lead some of you to do similar things. And then God will lead some of you to go out into all the nations as missionaries. Romans 15 talks about going out and laying a foundation where no foundation has been laid. God will lead some of you to go out to unreached people groups and proclaim the gospel in the void where there's absolutely nothing. I have a friend who's doing just that. He's going overseas to start a church. And I can't mention his name and I can't mention the nation, but when he first came back, his first trip, his first trip that he came back, he showed me a picture. Now, this is not the picture he showed me. I texted him, and he couldn't find it. But <laughs> this is a picture of that city. And he says, Jacob, in this picture, again, it's not actually this picture, but, you know, the picture that he was holding, in this picture, this, this is a city of a million people. And as far as anyone's aware, not one Christian. Not one. It means that everyone in that picture will die and go to hell without even the chance of hearing the gospel from someone. Now, obviously, people could, there's the internet and everything, but not even a single Christian that they could know. And God will lead some of you to go into places like that. You know, we're texting back and forth. Mike, who knows? Maybe one of, the, one of the Christians here at this conference will be the person that goes to that city with a million people. 
Does the Great Commission affect your decisions? What is the best, most strategic way for you to leverage your life to make disciples? The last one is this, be wise, be wise. Proverbs 14, 15 says, a simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. The next verse is Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Here's the question for your decision. Is this the wisest way to accomplish God's purposes? This way to accomplish God's purposes. Christians should be people that in every decision of your life, Every decision, you look at it and you're like, is this wise? Is this the best? You look at your Google Calendar. Maybe you start with having a Google Calendar because <laughs> you want to make the best use of the time. You have one and then you look at it. You're like, is this the best way for me to spend my time? Because the days are evil. Wise people, prudent people, Think about their decisions like that. Here's just one example. When you decide where to live, okay, when you, oftentimes people just think, I'm going to find a cute home in a cute neighborhood, and boom. You know, it's like that's, that's the way people make decisions. But if you thought through your commute, maybe either your commute to work or commute to Christian community or whatever, and you're like, you know, it's not necessarily exactly where I'd want to live, but he would cut my commute by 15 minutes. Okay? 15 minutes. Every si- on the way to work and on the way back. So that'd be 30 minutes a day. Okay? Do you know how many minutes that would be? Or how many hours that would be over a year? Let me get back to my notes to tell you how, how many hours that would be. Because I can't remember. That would be um, 15 minutes both ways, 30 minutes a day, 5 days a week, 52 weeks a year would be 130 hours a year. 130 hours. Over five years. <laughs> you don't know how many, how long it would be over five years? It'd be 650 hours, which is 81 eight-hour workdays. 81 eight-hour workdays. So I'm not counting sleep, okay? It's, you know, 81 workdays redeemed just by one little decision. I'm going to cut my commute just a little bit. Now, is it wrong to have a 30-minute commute? Absolutely not. There are way more godly people than me that have an hour-long commute, okay? I'm just saying, think about your decisions. Is it the most wise, prudent, strategic way for me to do what God has called me to do? The last thing is this. The last point. Be brave. Joshua 1.9 says this. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When you realize that God has commanded you He's commanded you things. Yes, he commanded Joshua in this passage, but he has also commanded you. It says, be strong and courageous. There's a confidence that comes with knowing that your decisions are backed by the creator of the universe. There's a confidence that comes with that. A boldness that comes with that. And sometimes, when I, man, it's scary out there. It's scary to raise kids out there. It's scary to be a missionary out there. It's scary to speak the truth out there. And one thing we need to ask ourselves is, has he not commanded me? Be strong and courageous. Now with, you know, you turn on the news, there are a lot of horrible things. Sometimes it's like, man, is anything going on that's good? I want to show a quick video that gives what God has been doing and what he is doing in the world. Let's share that. 
Now, I've, I've watched that video, I don't know, countless times, and every time it excites me. Because it says, okay, the news says this, but God has done this. This is what God has done. Think of the, think of the Great Commission when he's ascending into heaven. There's a hundred people, a hundred people. He was speaking to crowds of 5,000. There's a hundred left. And they're listening to him, and he's saying, go take over the world. Get out. Make disciples of the world. And that's what's happened. And that's what is happening. Be strong. Be courageous. Have I not commanded you? And we'll end with this. Look at what he tells Joshua. The last thing he tells Joshua. He says this. Joshua 1.19. He says, For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What does that sound like? For surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. God has always called his people to do big things. And he has always said, I will be with you when you do it. I wish I could see. I wish I could just skip, go into the future and see all the amazing things that God will lead each and every one of you to do. I wish I could see it. But you will be able to do those things because God will be with you. I, know, I think it was Jake that talked about um, the goal of the conference is to rest. And you might be thinking, I don't know, all these things that we're talking about, I'm not experiencing a lot of rest here. <laughs> it's like, this is just throwing out my plans. <laughs> it's like, this isn't very restful. It is restful when you realize this, that he will accomplish it. And even if we're in one of those times that it's going backwards. You know, it's like you watch that video and you're like, man, the Mongols are crazy. You know, it's, like, it's, like, it's like even if you live in one of those times where things are retreating, you can still live in confidence because you know it won't stay there. That it'll ebb back up. It might be our great-grandparents. Who cares? But it will ebb back up because God will be with them. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would lead us, that you would help us to make wise decisions, that you'd help us make decisions with your commands and with your goals in mind. Shape us, mold us, and empower us, for you are with us. Be with us now as we worship you. Amen. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content. Or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.